Acts chapter 19 and verse 23, and we'll read down through verse number 29. Uh, To begin with, we're going to finish Acts 19. We began this about a month ago on a Sunday evening, and uh, at different points in the sermon, we'll reference back to some of the material we've covered, uh, but uh, largely looking at 23 down to the end of the chapter, uh, as far as an opening reading, we're going to read down through verse 29. The Bible says, In the same time there arose no small stir about the way, about that way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation, and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods, which are made with hands. So that not only this, our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath. These are the other craftsmen, full of wrath. And cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And and having caught Gaius and uh, Aristarchus, these are uh, helpers of Paul, uh, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. So uh, what's going on here? Paul and his team are making such a dent in the uh, in the kingdom of darkness, such a dent against Diana, the temple, and the idolatry worship that now the craftsmen are gathered together. The craftsmen are having, if you will, a union meeting, and they're discussing how Paul is bad for business and how Paul must be stopped. Paul must be stopped. The title of the message this evening is this, When the Culture Fights Back. When the Culture Fights Back. I hope and pray that our church will get to a place where we're making such a difference in the community at large, where the culture is so adversely affected that the culture has to punch back. The culture has to punch back. Boy, Paul experienced that here. When the culture fights back. That's the title of the sermon tonight. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our church. Thank you for the bright light that we've been in this community for 41 years. And Lord, uh, all of the people that have been saved... uh, through the testimony and the reach of this church. But, Lord, the truth is, uh, proportionately, there are many more people on their way to hell in this community than have been reached. And many more souls need to be saved uh, than have been. And, uh, Lord, there's much work left out in front of us. Lord, many marriages that are struggling and broken, uh, many people battling with anxiety and fear and depression. Lord, many people uh, who are uh, dealing with a spiritual malady that need White Oak Baptist Church to step in their life and show them the light of the gospel, the light of the truth, the light of Jesus. Lord, uh, this community needs this church to be at its best. And Lord, help us to be ready that when we are at our best, to know that Satan is not going to take well to that, that he's going to fight back. Lord, may that be our goal. Lord, that we be so effective that Satan does indeed push back. Lord, each one of us tonight, I believe those that show up on a Sunday evening on a consistent basis uh, make up the core of our church. And so, Lord, may the core of our church get a hold of this truth. And, Lord, may we sharpen our swords. Lord, may we be better at what we do. And may we be more effective with the gospel message. And, uh, Lord, may you use us to be that, uh, that weapon against the, the power of darkness and Satan in this community. Be with us now this evening. Encourage us. Exhort us. Uh, Lord, rebuke us where necessary. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I begin the message this evening with a familiar passage, one we've looked at over and over again on Sunday mornings. Ephesians 6, 11 and 12 reminds us, Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles or the fiery darts of the devil. Verse 12, listen closely. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. It goes on to say, but we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against, listen to this phrase, spiritual wickedness in high places. Spiritual wickedness in high places. There is is a war between right and wrong, 
the forces of God and the forces of Satan, the forces of good and the forces of evil that are ever present around us. These battles are fought around church sinners that are the most serious with the gospel. I believe that Satan and his kingdom, he's very organized with his troops and he's got his demon forces, and they're assigned to different areas and regions and zones, and uh, no doubt there are demons that are assigned over the greater Bridgeport, Stratford, uh, uh, New Haven area. There is a demon assigned to make sure that the gospel is as limited in its reach as possible, and make no, there's no doubt about it, in my strong opinion, of all of the churches in the area that are preaching the gospel, there is not a church church within a 20 or 30 mile radius of this church with the scope of influence and the seriousness of influence as White Oak Baptist Church. Make no doubt about it, the demons assigned to this area, they know all about White Oak Baptist Church. 1 John 2, 15 and 16, uh, John reminded the churches around Ephesus that he wrote to the little house churches, he wrote, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16 continues and says, For all that is in the world, here are the things you are not to love. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. You see, there is a war between the church and the culture. A war, the church and the culture. The church is to be against the culture as we know the culture is against the church. Why? Because the church's general is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who draws up the battle plans. He's the one that sits in the, uh, in the rear, in the back. He's the one that uh, uh, gives our commands. He's the one that uh, sends the troops into war against the forces of evil. The Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, who rose from the dead, who sits in heaven, He is the author and the founder and the general of the church in this war against the culture. And the culture's general is Satan the father of all lies. He hates the Lord Jesus Christ. He hates what He did on the cross. He hates the church that He purchased with His own blood. You see, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the church is precious. He washes it with the water of the Word. He sanctifies it. He prepares it for that great wedding day in heaven. But uh, you see, the Lord uh, to the Lord, the church is precious. But to the culture and to Satan, the church is public enemy number one. Public enemy number one. I was talking to someone after church this morning and they were talking about a cult leader in another country who has done great damage uh, uh, to this idea of religion. And the comment was made to uh, this person, he, uh, the, per, the comment was made, see, the behavior of that cult leader is the reason why I don't go to church. Can you see what's going on here? Can you see what's happening here? You see, Satan's number one uh, tool he uses to attack humanity and keep them from heaven, his number one tool is religion. False religion. And this world is filled with false religion that serves as a diversion that, so that people can get close to the Lord and get close to being saved, but yet never quite make it there. The culture. Satan is the general of the culture as it is at war against the church. Now, please watch. I'm setting this up here this evening as we get into the passage. Notice here, you cannot defeat the culture by participating in its sin. You cannot defeat the culture by participating in its sin. Let me tell you what happens when you decide to live in the sin of the culture. You weaken the argument of your faith. You weaken the argument of your faith. When you think, well, if I talk like the world, I can reach the world. No, my friend, you've bought into the lie that you can uh, uh, co uh, warm up and uh, cozy up and, and be friends with uh, the sinful culture and yet reach them. No, you understand, we're at war with the culture. We're at war with the culture. So to watch the TV shows of the world and to talk like the world, my friend, you cannot, uh, you cannot uh, defeat the culture by participating in its sin. Here's what I know. After 37 years of living, our culture glamorizes sin. Glamorizes it. 
Uh, it takes the, the pig pen of sin and it makes it cool and trendy and, 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 and in vogue and, and all the rage. And uh, boy, you've you got to be involved in this and you need to know this and, and you need to talk this way and, and you, you need to dress this way and, and you need to behave this way. Why? Because this is trendy. This is in vogue. Sin is glamorized. Can we just state it as the Bible states it in James chapter 1 verse 10? Sin brings death. Sin brings death. I don't care if it's trendy. Sin brings death. I don't care if it makes the guys around the water cooler laugh. Sin brings death. I don't care if it's what everyone's talking about at the lunch table because they saw it on TV the day before. Sin brings death. Sin brings pain and sin brings death. Why would someone want your church and your Christ, what your Christ has to offer, if you talk like them, if you live like them, them, if you complain like them, if you get divorced like them, if you drink like them, if you keep the same schedule they keep, if you laugh at the same dirty jokes they do, if you watch the same TV shows and movies that they watch. We are not at war with any one individual inside of the culture we are at war with Satan and his sinful systems. We are at war with Satan and his sinful systems. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus commanded us what? He commanded us to be two things. Salt and light. Salt and light. I want to hone in on that idea of us being light. All right? Light. We're commanded to be light in a dark world. Jesus talked about putting that light under a bushel, that candle under a bushel. What good is a candle that's covered up by a bushel? Is the is the candle still lit? Yes. Can anyone see it? No. No. And when you participate in the sinful culture that we're at war against as a church, what you're doing is you're saying, yes, my light is lit. Yes, my candle is lit. Yes, I'm a Christian, but no, I don't want you to know it. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus told his disciples that they were to be sheep in the midst of wolves. We see Matthew 5, light in a dark world. Matthew 10, sheep in the midst of wolves. In 1 Peter, the apostle encouraged us to be a peculiar people. A peculiar people. Uh, there are some uh, Christians in their 20s and 30s who roll their eyes at this idea of being a peculiar people. Let me just say here, that does not mean God wants you to be weird. All right? Uh, how many seen people that, uh, how many remember the show Steve Urkel from the 1980s, right? It wasn't called Steve Urkel. I, I can't remember the name of the show, but Steve Urkel was the star. Family Matters, is that it? Or did someone say Family Matters? Some of you need to quit being involved in the culture, amen? You know too much, all right? Um, but no, but uh, so I've seen Christians that are like Steve Urkel, right? And they look like uh, they just walked off a Noah's boat, right? Because they've got the flood going on with their... Have you noticed that that's trendy right now to wear tight, boys wear tight pants that are up high and show their socks? I, there's a word for that, but I'm not going to use it tonight, amen? I'll let your imagination figure that out, all right? Um, you don't need to be weird to be right with God. You can have some social skills and still be right with God. But what you need to be is weird when it comes to, hey, you know what, I'm just not real comfortable with those type of jokes being told at the lunch table. I'm just not real comfortable with that being smoked during the lunch break. You can do it, I'm not going to do it. And if that means I'm on the outs, I'm on the outs. I'm just not real comfortable with the after-work parties you all are going to. I'm not going to be involved in that. Hey, I'm not going to go to the, uh, the, the Homeowners Association Christmas party where all of the drunken partying is going on. I'm not going to be involved. Now, that doesn't mean that I hate you. I'm not going to be involved in loving a sinful system that's taking the world to hell. We're to be light in a dark world. We're to be sheep among wolves. We're to be a peculiar uh, people. Earlier in this chapter, we find the account of the seven sons of Sceva falling to, uh, failing to exercise demons. For those of you that weren't here for that message or aren't familiar with the story, these uh, seven sons of the high priest Sceva were not saved people, and they went in and used the name of Jesus and Paul to try to exercise demons, to cast out demons. And uh, the, the demon leaped onto these seven guys, beat them up and stripped them naked, and they went running out of the house naked and beaten. And this scared the church. And you know what happened is there was revival that took place. 
They took all of their books that dealt with the occult. They took all of their uh, uh, objects in their home that were, uh, that were warm and fuzzy and, and, and in line with the occult, and they brought it and had a giant bonfire. And they burnt all of the items in their home that uh, pleased the devil. And the Bible says that the amount of it were in the thousands and thousands of, 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 uh, of silver shekels. What is that? It was 30 shekels that sold Jesus into slavery. It was in the thousands and thousands of shekels of product that was burned. What happened here? The church got the culture out of the church. The church had been friendly with the culture and had warmed up to the culture. And they said, you know what? We're at war with the culture. This is not something we want to play with. We're going to purge our hearts and we're going to get rid of that. The last sermon I preached out of Acts 19, uh, up to the, where we're at today, we talked about a church that is growing in Christ. A church that is growing in Christ. We talked about the importance of, 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 uh, of converts. We talked about the importance of, of, of growth and discipleship. We talked about the purpose of cleansing and getting our hearts right. And lo and behold, right when they did that, the church took off and began to grow. And one thing is for certain, Satan is not going to let some preacher come into his territory, start a church with, uh, without some kind of serious pushback. Everywhere the gospel went in the book of Acts, there was a counterattack from Satan. You may remember back in the beginning of the book of Acts, uh, 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 Ananias and Sapphira introduced money as an attack to the church. Uh, Stephen was murdered. Uh, Simon Magus brought in mimicry. And now Paul, everywhere he's gone, he's been tortured. And here we see misery. Uh, but all the same, although Satan may be attacking, the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the book of Acts is winning the battle. The church is defeating the culture. People are being saved. The gospel unleashed is taking off and moving forward. I propose that one sign that a church is being as effective as it ought to be is that there is pushback from Satan against the church. If there is no pushback, then Satan is not threatened by that church. If there is no pushback against a church, Satan is just yawning at that church. You say, oh, there's problems at church. You know what, if there's problems at church, that's a sign of one of two things. But one of those two things is that something is happening and Satan is trying to counter. And you know what I'd say? Where people are being saved and baptized and discipled and growing, hey... Praise the Lord! Do you think Satan's going to sit idly by and let us just steal souls from his kingdom? Do you think Satan's going to sit idly by and let the baptismal water stir and people be discipled on a regular basis on a Wednesday evening and throughout the week? Of course he's not. Satan is going to push back. Hey, don't be surprised when he does. In fact, it ought to alarm you if he doesn't. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus, finish the verse with me, shall suffer persecution. Right? Now, we know that individually, right? If I'm not in some way being persecuted for my faith, then maybe my faith isn't radical enough. But have we ever stopped and thought about this verse from a corporate, church corporate standpoint? When was the last time that Satan felt so threatened by White Oak Baptist Church that he just unleashed his fury on our church? And he just said, you know what, I'm going after that church because they're impacting me. You say, well, maybe that's because God has his hand of protection around a church. And maybe it is. But I'll say this. Everywhere Paul went in the book of Acts, Satan unleashed his fury against Paul. And you know what? God didn't always step up and stop it. In fact, in most cases, God did not step up and stop it. God allowed the pushback of Satan to purify the church and make it better. He didn't just put a fence around them and say, oh, well, I better protect them because they're a bunch of softies and they can't handle it. Boy, I, I want our church to get to a place. Here's what I'm getting at with the introduction. I want our church to get to a place where we're so fervent in making a dent in the kingdom of darkness, Satan goes into emergency mode and pushes back and fights. Why don't Baptist Church, we're not there right now. We're not there right now. Oh, we see some people saved here and there. But Satan's got most of us right where he wants us because most of us are content with White Oak Baptist Church being our Christian country club. 
And we're not really busy sharing our faith, and Satan's completely content to keep it that way. One day we're going to get to heaven, and we're going to sit there and observe the great white throne judgment where the lost of this community come before God, along with the rest of the world, and they're judged, and they're thrown into hell for their sin. I wonder if God will let us sit together as a church. And I wonder if we'll weep because we didn't do enough to make a deeper impact, a deeper dent into the kingdom of darkness. So we're too busy raising our children and living our lives and making our money and buying our clothes and our cars and our nice things. We're too busy fitting into the culture to make a dent against the culture. We're going to look at the story in Acts 19, and we're going to consider four thoughts as we consider this concept of when the culture fights back. Number one, number one, I encourage you to take notes this evening, the creation of the conflict, the creation of the conflict. Letter A, notice their worship of idols, their worship of idols. Look at me at verse number 23 and 24. It says there, in the same time there arose no small stir about the way for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain into the craftsmen. All false religions today teach some form of idolatry. If a church is not preaching salvation by grace through faith, and by grace through faith alone, in some form or another, they are teaching idolatry. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 4, uh, the Bible is very clear. It says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images, in any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. And uh, I, I shared uh, in my soul winners class uh, yesterday, but real brief, I was witnessing to a man named Gary while I was in Peru. Uh, he was one of our tour guides on one of the tourist uh, days we had out. And Gary said this, he said, uh, I don't understand how the Catholic Church can have idols, these are Gary's words, I'm just repeating them here, uh, or I'm paraphrasing what he said, how the Catholic Church can have idols, false idols, all over the building while the Ten Commandments says not to set up any graven image. He said they are in direct violation of the Ten Commandments. And to that, Gary, I said, Amen. That's right. I mean, it's right there, plain today. You're not to make any graven image of anything in heaven or earth. You're not to do it. They say, Well, how about a statue of Jesus? You're not to make a graven image of anything in heaven or in earth. Because what happens is we worship the statue instead of worshiping God. Idolatry. Idolatry in this form of making a... Uh, making a, a god out of uh, wood or stone or some sort of ceramic. Uh, we find this in uh, today, presently, in Catholicism, Hinduism, Buddhism. Uh, those are three of our world's main religions uh, that do this. But likewise, here in Acts 19, worshipers of Diana actually did this. They made idols out of wood, stone, ceramic, and they encouraged people to bow down to them. Now, there is another form of idol worship present in the world today, and that is the worshiping of one's own morality. We call that humanism. Everybody with me this evening? Humanism. This is, I'm a good person, and I'm going to get to heaven because I'm a good person. You know what you're doing? You're bowing down and worshiping yourself. Religions such as the Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, Islam, uh, most if not all Protestant churches... Catholicism, others, these religions teach in some form or another that you must hold to a specific code of conduct in order to make peace with the supreme being. This is humanism or the worshiping of one's own self. And Ephesians 2.9 was really clear on this when it says, Not of works, lest any man should boast. Not of works, lest any man should boast. God knows that if we got into heaven based on our own merit, we'd turn around and brag about it. Amen? How many of you men here are really good at bragging on yourselves? Can you just be self-aware enough to raise your hand at that? My hand is up. You know what? If I do something really great and Angela doesn't notice, I'm going to point it out to her. I wash the dishes for her and she never acknowledges it. About 30 minutes later, I'm going to say to her, Hey, I, I washed the dishes for you. Hey, I, I swept the, swept the uh, kitchen floor there for you. You know what she's thinking? Good job. I do that 10 times a day. Big deal. Right? I go out there and cut the lawn. Ah! Right? Look how straight those lines are. Doesn't that look good, Angela? 
You know what I'm doing? I'm bragging on myself. I can't even cut the grass without bragging on myself. Much less earn my way to heaven. If I could earn my way to heaven, I'd be, look at how good I am. Boy, I am the most self-righteous, godly man on planet earth. And Paul said, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul came into Ephesus and proclaimed that we are not to worship ourselves. We're not to worship a piece of wood. We're to worship the God of heaven and Him alone. What caused the conflict in Ephesus? What got Demetrius to stir up the crowd and create such a raucous, such a riot? Well, Paul's persuading people to believe in the one true and living God and to put away idolatry. Letter A, we see uh, their worship of idols. Letter B, notice their wealth from idols. Their wealth from idols. Look down at verse number 24 and 25. The Bible says, For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made uh, silver shrines for Diana, look here, brought no small gain under the craftsmen. In other words, he was making a boatload of money off of this. Verse 25, Whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Aha. Now we get to it in honest admission Paul's preaching was bad for business. Bad for business. Paul's preaching was affecting the bottom line. Paul's preaching was bringing down the income. 1 Timothy 6.10 The love of money is the root of all evil, while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Those who err from the faith are those who are corrupt with money. Now, let me just preface this. There's nothing wrong with having a nice church building. Nothing wrong with it. I look around our church building. We've made a lot of improvements over the last five years. Amen? The lobby is pretty. We've got a nice coffee area, a shiplap wall. We've renovated the nursery since I've gotten here. Uh, we've uh, renovated the auditorium, much to the chagrin of many of you. We did away with the pews. Amen? And none of you died. All right? All of you are okay. I went to church in Peru, and I had to stand up halfway through Sunday school because I was sitting in a wooden chair, and my legs were falling asleep. And I had to stand up and go sit in the back. On top of that, I was wearing a double mask, and I was six feet apart from my wife and everybody else. And here we complain about our padded chairs. Amen? Maybe let's, let's make sure we have some perspective on this. But here we are. We have a nice building, but I would say this. We don't have a gaudy building. Look at some of these religions around the world and tell me if there isn't a love of money here, all right? Put, put, the, put that first picture up there for me. This is a picture of the Vatican. How many of you just walk into a Catholic church, even here in Stratford, and you go, wow, how much did it cost them to build this? How about this picture here? This is a picture of the Taj Mahal. How much do you think it cost them to build that? The love of money is the root of all evil. How about this one here? This is a picture of a Buddhist temple. Many of these buildings that you're seeing are located in countries where people are starving to death or impoverished in a way that you and I would never understand. But their buildings are supreme. And their priests and their spiritual leaders are living very, 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 very wealthy lives. Why? Because the love of money is the root of all evil. You say, well, Pastor, surely there are some examples of this in Christianity. Oh, there are. There are. Look at a man like Creflo Dollar. By the way, what a terrible name for a pastor. And he'll tell you, send your money to my ministry and God will bless you. And it's what we call health and wealth type preaching, prosperity gospel preaching. And by the way, gospel, prosperity gospel preaching does not line up with Scripture. Who is the leader of Christianity but the Lord Jesus Christ? You understand that when Jesus needed a ride into, make his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, he had to borrow a colt. When he wanted to have his last supper, he had to borrow an upper room. He's the man that said uh, that birds of the air have nests and foxes have holes. The Son of Man hath not place to lay his head. My friend, God does not call you to be wealthy. But here we see some men making a whole lot of money off of idolatry. Paul comes in and starts preaching Christ. This was the creation of the problem. This was the creation, um, uh, here we find, of the conflict. Why? Because Paul is preaching truth 
and they're losing money as a result. Number one, the creation of the conflict. Number two, the change in the culture. The change in the culture. Letter A below number two, notice the repentance from idolatry. Look at verse 26 with me of Acts chapter 19, verse 26. The Bible says, and again, Demetrius is speaking here, Moreover, you see in here that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia. Look here. This Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made by, with hands. Paul is preaching an effective message. He's persuading people. And as a result, folks all over the area, they are throwing their idols in the trash and beginning to worship and serve the one true and living God. You know why Paul was able to persuade? Because Paul had the right message. And Paul wasn't ashamed to proclaim it. And Paul wasn't ashamed to persuade others toward it. There was a repentance from idolatry on a level that was just unseen. Paul showed up, he started preaching, he began in the synagogue there in Ephesus. For two years, he stayed there. He, he got himself a little room in a, in a school building, and he began to teach and train and disciple and prepare and minister. And boy, people began to hear and learn and grow. And more people began to hear and learn and grow. And, and, and people were throwing their idols away. And people were ceasing to worship in the temple of Diana. And boy, it was beginning to get felt by Satan and the money makers of that region. The culture did not like it because the church was winning the battle against the culture. Paul was a fanatic with his message. I've said this before. It bears repeating here again. Paul did not go into a town, preach a couple of little sermons in a church, collect an offering, uh, eat at Longhorn, and then head out of town. Oh no, oh no, every time Paul showed up into a city, boy, something happened. People got upset, people got angry, or people got revived. Something happened, Paul was a whirlwind everywhere he went. And boy, to have a church full of men and women who are whirlwinds with the gospel, everywhere they go, everyone they talk to, everyone they reach, here's the gospel message. Is everyone going to believe? No, but boy, if you become good at persuading with the gospel, people begin to turn their heart in life. I think as someone like a Billy Sunday in the 1920s, he'd show up to a town, he'd, he'd, he'd p- pick a place to preach, he'd rent out a hall, he'd rent out a stadium, 10, 20, 30,000 people would come to see him preach. He'd preach for 7 to 14 days in a row and when he'd leave town the bars would close their doors why? because there was nobody there to, 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 to frequent them to give them their business they would close from lack of business prohibition came right on the heels of that why? because he was making a dent in the culture a dent in the culture the change in the culture there was a high volume of people who were repenting from idolatry, I look out uh, uh, aside the doors of this church, and I just want to make sure I slip this in here at some point in the message. There are other good churches in the area, Baptists and non-Baptists alike, that are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, salvation by grace through faith. And for every church that preaches salvation the right way, Pastor Lejeune is for them. I am for them. I, I may not dot my I's and cross my T's like all of them do, but praise God for all of the churches that are seeing people leave uh, the darkness and come to the light of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Uh, listen, they may not have music like we have here. They may, not have, uh, they may use a different version of the Bible than we do, but they're preaching the gospel and people are getting saved. And that I say, Amen. Amen. I'm for anyone who's for snatching people out of the, the grips of Satan. And, and listen, we can talk about the, we, we can, we can fight over all the other details another time. I'm for those churches. That includes Brother Greer's church. Amen. We're for you, Brother Greer. Keep preaching away. Amen. We need all the help we can get. We need all the help we can get. But I'll just say this, this church here, I, I'm not the pastor of any of the rest of those churches. And you're not a member of any of those other churches. We're all part of White Oak Baptist Church. And we need to get shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm. And we need to stand up like an army. And we need to attack the devil. We need to attack the culture. And we need to persuade people to turn from idolatry and to salvation. Letter B, we see the reach in all Asia. The reach in all Asia. Look at verse number 26 and 27. The Bible says, moreover, you see in here that not alone at Ephesus, look here, but almost 
throughout all Asia. Paul did not just reach Ephesus. He trained and discipled and, and, and converted his disciples into missionaries and sent them out into the cities of past Ephesus. And boy, now the gospel is going everywhere. Look here. This Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying they be no gods, which are made with hands, so that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana shall be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. We talked about how infectious the gospel is. Why is it that the gospel made it all over Asia? Because Paul took the time to disciple, to develop his converts, and turn them into missionaries. The converts of Paul began to make their own converts. And that brings us back to this phrase, disciples make disciples. Say that with me, will you? Disciples make disciples. How do you know if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because there's someone in your life who you are currently discipling. Stop thinking about that for a minute. Who is it that you're investing in right now to lead them to be closer to the Lord Jesus Christ? If you're coming up blank, then my friend, it's not it's disingenuous for you to call yourself a disciple. We all need to be investing into somebody. Disciples make disciples. Paul took his converts and turned them into missionaries and sent them out. And as a result, it wasn't just Paul influencing people. It wasn't just Paul reaching people. Paul had trained an army to do it with him. Number one, we see the creation of the conflict. Number two, the change in the culture. Number three, and we'll move through the next two points quickly. Notice the confusion in the city. The confusion in the city. Well, what happened? Demetrius got these other um, craftsmen. He got them all worked up, got them all in a frenzy. They came charging out the doors of this labor meeting and out into the streets. Look at verse 28. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Look here. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, mid of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. Can you picture this? The mob uh, growing in size. And uh, great is Diana, great is Diana, and the raucous, rowdy, angry crowd. And sure enough, uh, they see Gaius in the street, and they see Aristarchus in the street, and they grab them up and hoist them in the air. And this mob that's grown in size goes running into the amphitheater, verse 30, and when Paul would have entered in, Unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent at him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused. And the more part uh, uh, knew not wherefore they were come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander beckoned with one hand and would have made his defense unto the people... But when they, the, the raucous crowd, knew that he, Alexander, was a Jew, all with one voice, about the space of two hours, cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. We've seen over the last year and a half the mobs that gather in the streets of our big city and the signs they hold up and they get to where they're chanting and they're chanting and they're chanting. That's exactly what happened here. What are they chanting? Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Alexander stood up trying to calm the crowd, trying to be a liaison, a mediator, and all things. He holds his hand up high, and someone yells down, Hey, that Alexander guy's a Jew! And the anti-Semitic spirit in the theater took over. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. For two hours they're chanting this while they're holding Paul's men hostage and not letting them go. Must have been quite a sight must have been quite confusing, must have been uh, quite a problem and quite a scary thing for Paul and his followers. Number four, lastly, we see the counsel from the town clerk. The counsel from the town clerk. Look at verse number 35. Let's read down to the end of the chapter. The Bible says, And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus. By the way, before I read this, I don't believe the town clerk to have been a saved man. But if you want a lesson in diplomacy, this guy had diplomacy figured out. There's a lot here 
in the, uh, in the science of diplomacy, if you want to know how to handle a tough situation, this guy handles it masterfully, okay? Look here, ye men of Ephesus, what men is there that knoweth not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, ye ought to be quiet, and to do nothing rashly, for ye have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches, nor yet blasphemer of your goddess. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any, the law is open, and there are deputies, let them implead one another. But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it should be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar. In danger to be called in question with the Roman government. There being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. In essence, is what he said is, hey, look, we all know that Ephesus is the place where Diana is worshipped. No one questions that. That is still the dominant religion here. Settle down. He goes on to tell them, uh, listen, these guys who you're holding hostage, they haven't done anything wrong. They haven't done anything wrong. He goes on and says, if Demetrius has a problem, that we have a system of order, and you're to bring these guys in and let the system do its, uh, do its thing. Let its system run its course. Demetrius, you are out of order for what you're doing, and if you don't knock it off, all of you are going to have to answer to the Romans, now go home. And they did. They went home. He was able to take this raucous amphitheater crowd and get them to go home and and go away. And so that brought to the end the, the, uh, the persecution toward Paul and his followers. Now, let me just conclude the message with some points to ponder. Okay, on your uh, outline there, I left uh, some room at the bottom there uh, with some more blanks to fill in. And I'm not going to be long, but I do want you uh, to, to not only consider these things in my message. I want all of us that are serious about being servants of the Lord and our church making a a bigger impact in this community. I want all of us to take these things home and meditate and dwell on them and think on them, okay? Here we go. First point to ponder. Here it is. We cannot reach the lost by embracing the culture of this world. We cannot reach the lost by embracing the culture of this world. Now, I do not know what goes on in hardly any of your private lives. I'm going to say that right here, right up front. I don't know what you watch on TV. I don't know what movies you take in. I don't know what kind of language you use outside of our relationship, my relationship with you. Okay, I don't know who your friends are. I don't know how honest you are on your taxes. I don't know these things. I just don't. With 95% of you in here, these are things about you that I don't know. But here's what I will tell you, is that if you are in any way embracing the systems of this world, the sinful systems of this world. Please, I'm not yelling at you. I'm not angry at you. I'm trying to beseech you. I'm imploring you to hear what I'm saying here. You cannot reach the loss by embracing the culture of this world. You cannot do it. If you're going to live like the world and enjoy sinful things, you are cheapening and weakening your testimony and your desire to reach the lost of the world. Many of us in here today have no, not an ounce of, or I shouldn't say that. Many of us in here today don't have the compassion we ought to have to reach the lost because we're too worldly. We're too worldly. We let worldliness exist in our home right underneath our nose. What are you watching on Netflix? Hulu, Amazon Prime. What are you looking at on YouTube? To the men in the room, what are you looking at on your phones and tablets and computers when your wife's not looking over your shoulder? You see, when we're corrupted by the culture, we cannot effectively reach the lost because we're embracing sin in our lives. What's going on in our children's cell phones and tablets? What are they watching? What are they involved in? I think of Aiken 
God allowed 36 or, 30, 36 or 39 men to die in the battle of Ai because of one man's sin. One man's sin and his family that helped him cover it up. What, what, what's going on within the walls of your home? You understand, our scope as a church corporately is limited in reaching a world that is hurting and dying and going to hell because we're embracing the world and the culture in our hearts. You cannot punch the devil in the eye while embracing the sin he's introduced to the culture. Are we concerned about people-pleasing and fitting in more than we're concerned about pleasing the Savior? Hey, I want all of us this week to do this. I want all of us, every time you turn your TV on, put a YouTube video on, watch something on your phone, listen to some piece of music, I want you to ask yourself this question, does this please the Lord or does this please the culture? You say, well, Pastor, aren't there some things that are neutral? Yes, there are. There are things that are neutral. And those things that are neutral, that are put out by the culture, but not sinful, we ought to handle those things in moderation. Moderation. We cannot reach the lost by embracing the culture of this world. Someone once said, it is okay for the boat to be in the water, but it is dangerous for the water to be in the boat. It is okay for the Christian to be in the world. It is dangerous for the world to be inside of the Christian. Second thought I want you to ponder. We cannot reach the lost unless we care for the lost. We cannot reach the lost unless we care for the lost. For many of you in here, the answer to this will be yes. For a handful of you in here, maybe the answer will be no. But here's the question. Do you have a relationship with lost people? Maybe they're co-workers, neighbors, maybe even relatives. Do you have a relationship with lost people? Do they know that you're concerned for their soul? Have you told them, I'm praying for you, to give your heart to Jesus. I'm praying for you to leave the spiritual darkness and come into the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, you can't tell them that unless you're praying for them. How much time do you spend on your knees praying for these people in your life that you know they're lost? When was the last time over a coworker you wept because you knew that unless something changed, they were on their way to a devil's hell? When was the last time you had a lip quiver over a relative who you knew was lost? You see, we can throw stones and we can condemn a lost world. And we can gripe and complain about how wicked the culture is. But these lost people in our lives, they don't need us to throw stones of condemnation at them. They need us to show them the love of Jesus. There's a song out there. Maybe at some point it will be sung as a special in this church. I'm sure Pastor Andrew knows the song. But the song goes this way, How can we reach a world we've never touched? How can we show them Christ if we've never shown them love? Just to say we care will never be enough. How can we reach a world we've never touched? You see, we can't love the community until we get to know the community. We can't reach the community until the community knows that those that sit within these four walls care for them. Let me give you another point to ponder here. The third point to ponder. The purpose of our church is not simply to continue to exist. The purpose of our church is not simply to continue to exist. Oh, it's great. We've made it to 41 years. All right. Great job. 
Hey, and by the way, it is an accomplishment. Because in the last 41 years, a lot of churches have closed their doors. This one's still open, praise the Lord. Can I just say right now, the goal isn't to make it to 82 years. All right, the doors are still open. Many churches are happy as long as the bills get paid and the doors stay open. God has not called White Oak Baptist Church to be a country club intact year after year and decade after decade. God has called this church to reach the lost and to be a salvation station. My last thought that I'd like you to ponder both here and throughout the week, the purpose of our church is to make a dent in the kingdom of darkness. The purpose of our church is to make a dent in the kingdom of darkness. Put a smile on my face if we made the news because the world was so upset with us because we were reaching so many people. Boy, it would make me happy if the uh, IRS came at us, not because we were in violation of tax code. Ms. Marcy does a good job of making sure we follow all the rules. And I'm very thankful for her. But I would love the IRS to come down and audit us because they're trying to catch us on a technicality because they're so sick of the impact we're making against the culture. And I'm not talking about ticking them off with us having a bad attitude. I'm talking about ticking them off because we're reaching people and we're, we're, we're positively affecting the culture much to their chagrin. Now listen, and I'm done with this. You say, Pastor Zern, how are we going to get there? How is that going to happen? Let me tell you, it's not going to happen by just having the five paid staff members of White Oak Baptist Church be on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not going to happen by having the three additional deacons and their wives be on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not going to happen from having two or three or four key men or women in the church who are fired up for the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way that we're going to make a true dent in the darkness, in the kingdom of darkness, is if every single one of you that call White Oak Baptist Church your home stand up and say, I'm going to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and I'm going to punch the devil in the eye. What if everybody at White Oak Baptist Church shared the gospel the way you share the gospel? What if everybody at White Oak Baptist Church was as committed to the cause as you're committed to the cause? Would we make more of a dent? Or would we make less of a dent? I don't really get the sense that the culture is pushing back against our church. I just don't. Maybe I'm missing something. You know what that tells me? We're not doing enough. There's a world out there dying and go to hell while we sit on our padded chairs and shake our head up and down and live our lives. And those people need Jesus. And we've got the answer, and we need to get after it. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Every head bowed, every eye closed. This church is not just here to continue to exist one year after another. This church is here to make a difference in lives, to see marriages renewed and, and made right, to see broken hearts brought around to the Lord Jesus Christ, to see the lost have their destination changed from hell to heaven. Are we pushing against the culture? Are we fighting the good fight? Lord, I pray tonight you get hold of our hearts. Lord, would you show us where we can do more and be more? Show, start with me, Lord. May we all become impassioned and understand the day is coming where our work is done. Whether that's in death or the rapture, Lord, very soon the church era will be over, I believe. We'll stand before You. Lord, may we give it our all. Stir us, Lord. Convict us. Exhort us. Rebuke us. But help us to leave here, Lord, determined to give it our all as we battle the culture of the devil. May we get behind our general, the Lord Jesus Christ, and may we bear our cross in Jesus' name.